0: Hello, and thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of Credal Catholic. Credal Catholic is a Catholic theology and apologetics podcast that is faithful to the Magisterium and dedicated to the mission of the new evangelization. We're a part of the Vernacular Podcast Network, and if you'd like to support us or find out more about the other shows on our network, head to patreon.com vpn or vernacularpodcast.com. Patreon.com vpn or vernacularpodcast.com. Enjoy the show. All right, welcome back to another episode of Credal Catholic, and specifically today, another episode of dun, 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 Encyclopedia. I'm joined by my new favorite interlocutor for theology, Kevin Boschman He's sitting across from me at the desk here. And Kevin, you've uh, you've had a busy week, I know. But, busy week. But as I understand it, you're no closer to being a Dominican than when we talked about this last.
1: Lay Dominican?
0: Oh, lay Dominican.
1: Closer. Okay. Closer actually, yes. Okay.
0: Good. Um, what about a priest Dominican? <laughs> a religious Dominican. Wow.
1: Well, you're always throwing you're always throwing that one at me. It's uh you know, it's funny, but you did prepare me for this. You told me this was gonna happen. I did. Um, so, you so, have, so you
0: have a witty comeback all prepared? I do not I do oh. not have
1: a witty comeback oh. prepared. But uh, you know, since last week you didn't include me in the conversation with Father Shrappa. I'm not bitter. I don't love Father Shrap or anything. I mean how? I love Father Sharapa. Right. Great guy. um, Great priest. Very Mm -hmm. holy priest. Yes. Uh, You had a great
0: conversation and, uh, you know, discernment is hard. So. um, So are you, are you criticizing me for not inviting you to that conversation?
1: No, you're laying a trap for me. You're laying a trap for me (laughs) because you knew that I just couldn't do it because of a schedule. Because I did invite you. You're right. You're
0: right. Well, your scheduling conflict was you've been asked to be the leader of a parish committee that's planning a parish event, right? Correct. Correct. And uh, I have a lot of respect for you, with respect to that, because only with respect <laughs> to that. Yeah, don't get carried away here, uh, uh, because I think, as we talked about a couple weeks ago, that to me is the true test of leadership. Can you successfully navigate? the dynamics of a parish committee, <laughs> the dangerous waters of a <laughs> parish committee. That's a tall order to head of a parish committee. Oh, so. no, I,
1: I'm, I'm very fortunate. We have a, a really great team, very invested individuals uh, with a lot of experience. So it's an expedition. We're planning uh, an expedition uh, with core expeditions, which is um, a ministry out in Wyoming. Uh, and they plan these great trips to um, basically go out in the wilderness and uh, it's kind of a leadership thing. You can do rock climbing, rafting, whatever you want to do. They have really experienced guides, and the whole idea is to kind of get people out, uh, out of the city, out of their comfort zones In a little God's bit. Creation. Get them into God's creation, test their limits, uh, see. Uh, what they can learn about themselves, about other people in the parish, uh, all with a lot of good faith
0: formation going on at the same time. Is this a multi-day event or is it a day trip?
1: It's multi-day. So uh, this is going to be the second iteration of it. Last year, uh, really this past summer, before I was uh, in Denver and before I was a part of this parish, uh, they had a very successful trip. So they're looking to uh, continue that momentum and hopefully I do not stunt their growth
0: too much. <laughs> it sounds awesome. Uh, and Colorado is a great place for it because the mountains are so close. So
1: yeah, absolutely. Um, it's, I think it's going to be great. So it's, uh, you know, St. Dominic's parish is putting it on. And, uh, if you're in the Denver area, you might, uh, see something about it. And, you know, in the coming months, uh, maybe next early next year, we probably put something out.
0: So St. Dominic's is hosting it, but this is open to people of all parishes.
1: We're we're, we're going that direction most likely. Um, So it just depends. We'll see what the uh, interest is at the parish first uh, and then um, anticipate probably opening it up to other members of the archdiocese as well. So,
0: well, I'm interested in if it's open to members of the of the neighboring diocese Uh, down down here in Colorado Springs, the little brother of the archdiocese. Yeah. Well, as
1: a, we'll see, as a friend of the archdiocese, (laughs) you might be able to do it. We'll see.
0: It's all about who you know. Well, I am excited to talk about our encyclical topic today, Kevin, but before we do, I, I want to do a little bit of critical self-reflection here.
1: Oh, we're getting personal.
0: Yeah. So this past weekend you were with me actually we were hanging out mm-hmm. and uh i responded to an e- an email on a listserv and it was it was a poor choice to respond to this email and it was an even more cho- poor choice to respond in the way that i did mm-hmm. and the the content was theological but um my contribution to the listserv was uh i would describe it as cheeky <laughs> <laughs> rather than like substantive sure. and scholarly and uh i just it, it sort of, it, it spiraled out of control and things got contentious quickly and I quickly regretted my action and then tried to tried to calm things down by sending a subsequent one and explaining further what I was thinking and then basically saying, you know, let's not engage over this. Let's correspond privately if you want to talk more about this, but I don't want to instigate more on this listserv. And uh, yeah, I was just thinking about this. I, I, it was it was good. I mean, I'm not, I was not glad that it was happening in the moment, but I think it was good that it did happen because I took away from that that electronic mediums are or electronic media are very difficult channels to have these conversations about topics that people have very strong opinions. Sure. The the uh, nature of this discussion specifically was about Protestant Catholic divides, and uh, and those are those are things that people get very sensitive about. And as Catholics, we need to handle those things with sensitivity and care always making sure that we're pointing people closer to the truth rather than making them react defensively in a way that draws them further away from it.
1: So yeah, I think that's, that's really good self-reflection. What would you say? Like, how, how do you think if you could go back in time, how would you handle that situation? Would you just not respond? Or do you I, I think,
0: think, yeah, I think I just wouldn't have responded. Yeah. I, I, w- I mean, and, and I think if something needed to be said on that, uh, then I could have said, said it, but in this specific instance, nothing needed to be said.
1: It's definitely a temptation, right? Because, yeah. especially when you are uh, smart on a certain topic, or at least perceive yourself to be smart on a certain topic. is, uh, you know, I often find out that I'm I'm not as smart on the topic <laughs> as I thought I was after engaging someone. But uh, you know, it's a temptation because you know, even if if the even if the will is good behind it, like you said, oftentimes email. Yeah, sure. Things like that, just they don't go over that
0: well. Well, and I find that that my pride doesn't let me easily leave a conversation mm. alone. And, you know, I, so I can make a cheeky comment, which is not constructive. But then if someone else responds with a more serious response about all the ways in which I'm wrong, I, it's very, very difficult for me to walk away from that because right. I think I can back up what I'm saying and I really want to. And then it, it, it can very easily devolve into this. 24 part thread because neither me nor my interlocutor wants to let the other have the last word. Mm -hmm. And so it, uh, you know, I ended up, I ended up bowing out of the conversation and there were others who did have the last word. And that was a good, a good exercise in, uh, humility for me to let that be the case because you can't control what people say about you or, or what people think about you. And at a certain point you just have to you know, cut your losses when you realize that you're not making any progress. And it was convicting too, for me to realize that maybe I didn't handle that in the best way. And I could have drawn people further away from the truth rather than towards it, which was certainly not my intent, but perhaps a, an effect of my Un- misguided action side effect. Yeah.
1: You know, I think, you know, kind of talking about humility and and being humble. It's definitely um, a challenge. I'm, ch- I'm struggle with uh, humility. Certainly. Um, And, you know, I think we had a really great gospel reading this last uh, Sunday. Uh, We had a good example of humility, right? In the prodigal son where Mm he, um, after going out and being a spendy guy and kind of enjoying the material aspects of life, realized um, that he had kind of missed out on what really mattered, right? And I think the great, um, one of the big great takeaways from that gospel is that he had the humility uh to go back. That's true, yeah. Um you know it's hard. I think it's hard especially when you look at the gravity of what he had done in that scenario to admit to yourself you've done wrong and you know the what he says in that gospel about um I you know I'll go back and I'll ask only to be a servant in the field and be treated as a servant like and I think it's an it's an incredible witness about how humility uh is answered by grace when you return uh, home, right?
0: Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And I think that's a good setup for our discussion today. I think so. We're talking about the encyclical Deus Caritas Est. And I was thinking about this uh, as I, well, I was thinking about my sort of listserv faux pas as I was reading this encyclical because Benedict's whole thrust in writing this is to remind us that Deus Caritas Est, that is God is love from 1 John chapter four. And and because of that, because of that reality, because that reality is so fundamental to the truth of the Christian faith Everything we need to, everything we do as Christians needs to remind people of that reality. Mm -hmm. And if you are not doing that, then quite simply, you're doing it wrong. So if what you're saying is not pointing people towards the truth that God is love, then you're doing it wrong. Mm -hmm. And one way that you can fall into that trap is by not treating people with love yourself. And, um, and that's an important thing to remember when you're dealing with people of all stripes inside the church or outside of the church to treat them with love. But Deus Caritas Est. So this was published on Christmas Day, two thousand five. We,
1: we, we need, like a, a nice encyclopedia bumper or something. We need. You're gonna have to work on this as our de facto I'm, producer. Okay. Like we yeah. Got let in. me uh,
0: <laughs> let me just get on the encyclopedia jingle there. I'll uh, I'll just record a little song. There you go. Encyclopedia. 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 So, Christmas Day, two thousand and five. This was the first encyclical of Benedict's pontificate, mm-hmm. and this is really part of a tr- a trilogy of encyclicals in his pontificate. Uh, one is this one, the first one. Uh, this is about love. The second one is uh, Space Salve, which is about hope, and then the third one is uh, Caritas in Veritate, which is basically love in truth. So he you sense a theme here. He wants to remind us of our role as Christians and the role of the church in love. And that's, that's a unique thing. Benedict is a Pope who's been criticized roundly, uh, especially by progressive elements inside and outside of the church for uh, being hard headed and stubborn and lacking charity. Mm-hmm. So it's interesting that this Pope who is accused frequently of lacking charity, uh, for example, people point to his, uh, I read somewhere today, someone was calling his Regensburg address disastrous, uh, I think it was in reality far from that, but um, he's accused of lacking, he's accused of, of lacking charity. Mm-hmm. And I think it's a very unfair accusation. And these two encyclicals remind us how preoccupied this man was and is, and he's still alive with the idea of love and how well the church is fulfilling Christ's mandate of love.
1: Yeah, absolutely. This was, uh, this was his favorite of the encyclicals that he wrote. So uh, in his uh, kind of interview, last book, The Last Testament, uh, he, he talks about this and he, and he mentions that this is his, his favorite encyclical. And you know, when you read it, you can kind of tell why, because it's, it's short, it's, you know, 30 ish pages, but it's like, I think I was throwing you throwing you like fire emojis while yeah, I was reading a, it's it. It's a little fire. There's, <laughs> there's a little, fire coming through.
0: The the thing that I really appreciate about reading this encyclical or for that matter, anything Benedict has written is you get a very strong German analytical sense whenever mm-hmm. you read anything that he writes in the sense that there's no wasted word, there's no wasted space. Everything flows very clearly. It's all written almost in outline form and it's, it's very easy to follow the argumentation. Mm-hmm. And I absolutely love that. And i I found that it was so useful in this case too, and helped to break down the complicated topics he's talking about in the space of, like you said, 30 pages or so. So the format is there's, there's two big parts of this. The first part is really a philosophical examination of love and and love not just as it appeared in in antiquity, but as it as it is uh, restated or reformed in Christian theology. And the second part is sort of an application of those ideas, uh, make turning the ideas of love in the systematic and moral theology that he's talking about into a sort of practical theology and how that's lived out in the church today. And I think I think we should just sort of follow the structure of the encyclical because it is so well organized um, and, and done so in an analytical fashion. And he starts out talking about the semantics of love. And one of the things that, that struck out to me, or stuck out to me when I was reading this is he talks about how we, we overuse and often misuse the word love so much. Right. And I was talking about this with my daughter at dinner who asked me, uh, or no, I think I said, I love chocolate and she has a, a little stuffed animal named Gerald. And she told me before that Gerald really, really likes chocolate, and so I said, "I love chocolate." Convenient. yeah, exactly. I noticed that Gerald shares a lot of the same right. characteristics. That I do. Yeah. So anyway, I said, "You know, I love chocolate just like Gerald loves chocolate." And she said, "He doesn't actually love chocolate; he likes chocolate." Oh, and I was thinking, she oh, gets "That's it. a really good point, Esther. I should probably stop saying that I love things like that because we talk about that all the time, right? Like, you love your favorite food. I love my new car. I love my house. I love my city. But that's not really what." Love is about what what we're expressing is a uh, a certain fondness for those things, Mm -hmm. uh, an appreciation for the material goodness therein. But we're not talking about love, and I think Benedict was very strong in making this point that uh, when we talk about love, we're talking primarily about affections between people. And he talks about the three types that are in uh, in Greek antiquity. And I want you to talk about that because you're the Greek scholar here. <laughs> but, but, but he says chief among those, right, is the love between man and wife. That's sort of the, um, mm. the most complete, most perfect example, uh, the pinnacle, if you will, of love. Because it's that love that uh, is procreative. It's that love that is unitive. It's that love that inspires great sacrifice. And so the love between man and wife is the highest point. Um, but at the same time, that love... Uh, was distorted in antiquity, mm-hmm. and uh, he used the example I think of uh, prostitutes in Greek temples, right? right. Um, yeah. So as
1: part of like the Vestal sacrifices and and games and all of that, and uh, the oracles. Yeah, there was a lot of um, uh, the the religion, especially of ancient Greece, had a very erotic nature to it, for right? Sure. And that was
0: a corruption of the of of Eros itself. Now, I mean, he goes on; he talks about. Um, how later scholars, uh, Nietzsche, chief among them, accused Christianity then of stripping Eros mm-hmm. of its glory. But Benedict actually says, no, it's the other way around. <laughs> it, was, it was distorted before, and Christianity is what restores it. But before we talk about all of that, maybe you can talk a little bit about the Greek words for love that Benedict analyzes here.
1: Sure, so he starts, uh, well, he introduces these three terms, Eros, uh, agape, and philia. Um, so the first of those that he talks about is Eros, and Eros is, uh, you know, the kind of love. It, it's it's cognate with erotic, so it's the kind of love that we um, typically think about um, when uh, you think of, especially like a, probably you know, a sexual love or an attraction between people. Right. And um, so, Eros, what Benedict is getting at with Eros is he says that it's not bad. In and of itself, because it leads in ascent to higher forms of love, right? right? But uh, especially as you alluded to in antiquity, eros is kind of um, it's misplaced because it's celebrated as a sort of divine power. Is is what Benedict is saying, and he alludes to some uh, ancient myths and and talks about its place and uh, kind of the reason why uh, eros uh, even today appeals to us as human beings. And uh, he talks about how there is a kind of a feeling in the human heart that you are not fully complete until you find another half or another part of you. And one of the kind of highest examples of this, especially in classical uh, antiquity and the literature of classical antiquity that Benedict references is he talks about a, uh, a myth that uh, Socrates um, the attributes sort of to Socrates in the, um, and he calls it uh, one of Plato's works. And what he's specifically referring to, actually, there is Plato's Symposium, which is uh, Plato's philosophical dialogue on love. And specifically, uh, it focuses a, a large portion on erotic love. And he talks about a myth, and it's a myth that's told by, uh, in this dialogue, told by the poet Aristophanes. So Aristophanes is a uh, poet of uh, and a contemporary of Socrates, so a, a, a frequent interlocutor and it's interesting the relationship especially between Socrates and Aristophanes because you have the philosopher on one end and the poet uh, on the other. So in some sense you would say you have a discoverer of truth on one end and a creator or manufacturer right, right. of truth on the other. But ultimately uh, the point of this is that Aristophanes tells this myth about how human beings were all uh, originally spherical and kind of in one and then as a punishment the God's cleaved us all in half and we're now kind of put into the world and constantly searching for our other half until we find that. So there's like And, it's and, a the, very and the search
0: m- for that other half takes the form of eros, right? Exactly. Because, because it's, and Benedict characterizes it as ascending love because you're you're searching for something to complete you essentially
1: exactly and so that is uh benedict brings this out as it is important and it's an essential part of that ascent because it is kind of the initial movement of your heart that allows you then to reach that higher form right
0: and and benedict points out in comparing the myth in plato to the christian story of man and woman being created. Mm-hmm. And he says, there's no punishment here, but the analogy still does hold because then Benedict shifts a little bit and talks about um, how our, our ascending love uh, eros in a way, or God's love for us, which is a form of eros that, that Benedict mm-hmm. says is also totally agape that is created in in, in a sense uh, by punishment. That is original sin, right? Because original sin cuts us off mm-hmm. and we are designed not just for union, man and woman with each other, but we're, but humankind is designed for union with God. And so, in that sense, uh, not to say that God is one half of humanity or humanity is one half of God, but there is a part of us that is lacking when we don't have communion with God. I, I, I don't know if you've heard the the phrase, it's a little bit uh, a little bit shallow, perhaps, but it communicates a truth, I think, which is a God-shaped hole in your heart. right. And so so that that, I think is part of what we're talking about here, that h- mankind, because of original sin is cut off from complete union with God. And the story of the Christian life is God's attempt through his eros, which is also totally agape and love to reestablish that relationship with us through the love of God.
1: Right, exactly. And so that word you're using again, agape is this of the three loves it's the highest form, right? And it's the kind uh, that we now, I think, the clearest definition I've, I've ever really heard of it is that agape or true love is willing the good of the other. Mm. So it is an actual case where it's no longer about, you know, attraction. It's no longer about friendship, which is philia, which is more of a, um, not so much a, a erotic love, but philia being, uh, the joy you have when you, when you have a friend or you kind of get some utility out of friendship or
0: shared common interests. Exactly. Or yeah. Exactly.
1: Um, and it can extend even beyond that and to sort of a uh, sacrificial friendship where you're willing to make sacrifices for uh, the good of uh, your friend, but ultimately agape then being that true um, mutual feeling of willing the good of the other. Uh, and that
0: is, well, is it even mutual necessarily though? Because it doesn't have to be right. right?
1: But uh, I think that's the, one of the, one of the points that uh, Benedict is really making is that in its highest form, it's going to be mutual because you look uh, then and you say if God, God is going to always love you in that manner, He's always going to be willing uh, your good, and so then if you are truly um, if you are truly in love with God and and you kind of fill this other side of that agape right. the relationship, then it is a mutual love, and and through that uh, you're loving God. And God's loving you ultimately leads you then down this road that Benedict takes us and and basically says you know Christian love then by that nature implies a love of neighbor right
0: yeah the the other two things that I've um that have been helpful for me as I think about agape is it's unconditional so it's not conditional on the recipient right uh as you mentioned um or in addition to what you mentioned and then the third thing is it's self giving so it's willing the good of the other. It's unconditionally willing the good of the other and it's willing the good of the other, uh, even though it requires you giving something of yourself. And And in that context, it's easy to see why that is the highest form of love because it's not about the giver of the love. It's completely about the receiver of the love. And Benedict points out this is the the most commonly used word for love in the New Testament. So already we see from antiquity a shifting of the sort of hierarchy of love, where Christianity is is prioritizing or emphasizing the importance of agape. And not just the importance of agape in some abstract sense, but the importance of agape in the sense that God loves us with agape. And Benedict points out that the love of God is eros because it is designed to uh, help us ascend and it is, is designed to help us complete the part of us that is missing, but is also totally agape in that it is unconditional in that it is God giving uh, of himself. And then we get to the, the incarnation.
1: Right. Yeah, absolutely. And it, it, it always reminds me of, you know, the famous Augustine quote at the beginning of the confessions uh, about restless hearts. Right. Because it goes back then to and it just this,
0: what the quote is, our hearts are restless until they rest in Thee, right. Right.
1: And it, captures this in the sense that your heart is restless because you have this attraction towards God. And because like it's an, it's the eros that God is, is
0: using to try to draw you near to him. And then this is a much more eloquent quote than the God shaped hole in the heart. <laughs> right? <laughs> <laughs> but it gets at the same idea.
1: It does. And, and then it's, you know, until it finds its rest in you and Benedict hits on this when he talks about agape, then being, uh, true love in the sense, not only of being exclusive, so exclusive in that, you know, you love God fully and wholly and exclusively, uh, but also that it's eternal, right? It's forever. And that's, that's what, what moves it, especially away from Eros, which oftentimes is uh, temporal, is sometimes uh, at the mercy or at, of, of an individual whim where, right. you know, you're in a mood or, or in a bad mood or a good mm-hmm. mood or whatever. But true agape is, is completely devoid of that. Um, kind of temporal element. And so Benedict says that then this does leave, you know, love truly, agape truly to be an ecstasy, but not in the momentary sense. It's not, as he calls it, a moment of intoxication, intoxication, but it's a journey. It's, it's your complete movement uh, out of an inward looking love to an outward looking uh, love towards God. And then that brings you then to that Um, Kind of ultimate point is if you're going to love God eternally, you are going to have a moment where you are going to be moved in love towards neighbor and that's going to stay with you and it's going to characterize uh, your activity from that point forward.
0: Yeah, that's a great point because he talks about this, this idea in the encyclical at length and he uses the word encounter. So the love of God is not a static thing that simply exists and is there for us to access, but it's rather a dynamic thing that moves us to action and with which we can actually engage. And because that's the case, because the love of God represents or presents us with an opportunity for encounter, we come away from that encounter changed. And so when God approaches us with his love and we respond um, to the love, We will not remain unchanged. You know, a couple of weeks ago, um, one of the pastors at my church gave a a homily at daily mass and he made a great point that I'd never thought about before. And that's that the Magi, when they come to visit the child Jesus, they even under threat from Herod, right? They they go to Herod and um, they find out that basically he is uh, wanting to kill baby Jesus. And so they they fear for their lives from Herod. And so they go to visit Jesus and then they return by another way. And so I've always read that as, oh, they were afraid of Herod. So they return by another way. But um, his point in the text was no one encounters Jesus and remains the same. Mm -hmm. So we always, that's incredible. We always return (laughs) by another way. That's incredible. And so the same, the same for the Magi. And I want to, I want to read this passage uh, very briefly from Benedict's Benedict's encyclical here, where he talks a little bit about this um, sort of eros from God that pulls us and the agape that uh, transforms us. Um, And he talks about uh, something that Pope Gregory the Great said uh, long ago. So Benedict writes, in the account of Jacob's ladder, the fathers of the church saw this inseparable connection between ascending and descending love, between eros, which seeks God, and agape, which passes on the gift received. In that biblical passage, we read how the patriarch Jacob saw in a dream Above the stone which was his pillow, a ladder reaching up to heaven on which the angels of God were ascending and descending. Isn't that interesting? A particularly striking interpretation of this vision is presented by Pope Gregory the Great in his pastoral rule. He tells us that the good pastor must be rooted in contemplation. Only in this way will he be able to take upon himself the needs of others and make them his own. And there's a a Latin phrase that I... I'm not even going to try to pronounce (laughs) St. Gregory speaks in this context of St. Paul, who was born aloft to the most exalted mysteries of God. And hence having descended once more, he was able to become all things to all men. Uh, And he references second Corinthians 12 and first Corinthians nine. He also points to the example of Moses who entered the tabernacle time and again, remaining in dialogue with God so that when he emerged, he could be at the service of his people within the tent. He is born. This is a, a quote within the tent. He is born aloft through contemplation while without he is completely engaged in helping those who suffer. So that gets at the heart of what you were saying just now, Kevin, that the, this encounter is what changes us Mm -hmm. and the eros that sees God then enables the reception of the agape, which is totally self-giving and it's transformative for the life of the Christian. And then it has very real implications for the life of the church. And there's no better example of this type of love than that of Jesus Christ.
1: Yeah. And that's why, uh, that's why Benedict says towards the end of this first uh, section He talks about how you have to constantly return to the wellspring of love to be uh, rejuvenated, to be able to, um, again, eliminate that temporal aspect and make it a truly eternal love. You have to return to that wellspring. Constantly, and that wellspring is Christ Himself. Right. And how do we telling return you, to Christ Himself? He's telling you to go to confession and to the Eucharist. Exactly. <laughs> to go to the, communion. the
0: Eucharist. <laughs> um, yeah. So before we talk about Jesus Christ, the incarnate Son of God, and how He embodies love, I just want to make a couple points because Benedict has this great section in the first part called The Newness of Biblical Faith. And He makes a couple of really profound points here, I think. In distinguishing Christianity from all that has gone before and all that has come since, he says there are basically two key ideas. One is that there is one God who is the source of all that exists. Now, you might say that's not super original. Well, at the time, it was pretty original, right? Judaism Mm -hmm. was monotheistic, uh, unlike all of the religions that surrounded it, right? It was Mm -hmm. much more common to be in some sort of polytheistic uh, civilization
1: right. in 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 civilizations polytheistic civilizations where love was one of the divinities
0: right exactly time, exactly yeah. so Judaism and then obviously Christianity is distinctive in saying there's one God. Mm-hmm. Now, since that time, obviously, Islam is also a major monotheistic religion. It also says there's one God, the source of all that exists, and it, it actually criticizes Christianity, of course, for being polytheistic, and it's because uh, Islam misunderstands the doctrine of the Trinity and all these things, but that is a very unique thing, that there's one God who's the source of all that exists. Now, the second thing that Benedict points out that's unique to Christianity. Uh, And this is not, this is also found in Judaism, but it is uh, communicated more fully and more perfectly in Christianity. That is the fact that this God is love. So, and he uses the word logos, which is the word that is in the beginning of the gospel of John. In the beginning was the word, the logos is the source that all source of all that exists, but also the organizing principle of all that exists. And what is the organizing principle of all that exists? Well, first John chapter four, verse eight tells us that that organizing principle is, is love, right? So the the Logos is actually love. And so when the Logos becomes man incarnate, that man is love. And that man is the most perfect and most visible example of love. And so these two insights about Christianity are really important because no other religion can say those things about its claims. Mm -hmm. That there's one God who's the source of all that exists and that that one God is love and loves man. Right. Right. He loves his creation. Right. He doesn't, he doesn't simply demand uh, obedience or submission from his creation. Uh, He doesn't demand uh, obedience contrary to reason. He loves his creation and and has ordered his creation in a way that makes himself accessible to Mm -hmm. his creation. Mm -hmm. That's the newness of biblical faith as Benedict describes it. And so in in that context, I think maybe we should talk about now the incarnation, Jesus Christ, God made man.
1: Yeah. So when, when we look at the incarnation uh, one of the great portion of the incarnation that sets it away again, this new biblical way of life that sets it apart from ancient religion and ancient society is uh, when you look, especially in mythology, Greek mythology, Roman mythology, you know, the gods frequently descend from, from the heavens, from their place on Olympus or, right. or wherever. So in, so in uh, that
0: sense, Jesus coming to earth isn't
1: totally, unique. it's not completely novel in, in that
0: sense. Yeah. Right.
1: But the difference being uh, essentially that the gods are in, in, mythology are typically coming for some sort of uh, interaction that is not a fulfillment of uh, agape, of this higher form of love. It's typically uh, either to satisfy some material need, or uh, if it is any sort of love, it's an erotic love. So it's in order to fill, even the gods had this need for eros. So you see um, figures like Hercules, who is uh, the son of um, a god A God man and union. a human being. So it's a God-man union, yeah, exactly. So you see that sort of uh, union uh, take place, and that is sort of the interaction, the extent of the interaction between the gods and the human world. And now in Christ, in the incarnation, we see God, who this encyclical has already established as love itself, then entering into human form in order to enter our world, uh, in order to show us that highest form of love to teach us agape, to teach us uh, the meaning of agape, to show us how to live uh, a life of agape and then uh, directs us to fulfill it through uh, the ministry of Christ, which is ultimately the ministry of love towards your neighbor.
0: I love that. And I love how contrasting it with stories in Greek antiquity make it obvious how how, how, how revolutionary, right? And so this, this makes Benedict's point ring even more true to my ears because he talks about men like Nietzsche who say Christianity takes all the fun away. They strip all the glory out of eros. It restrains you. Right. And Benedict is saying, no, mm-hmm. it perfects you. Right. It, it lifts you up. Like it, it, uh, I, I forget the exact word he uses, but it's, it, uh it's much better, right? It makes it all, it transforms it and it makes it much better. And so in that sense, you know, the Greek gods would come down and, have interactions with men that would result in God, man, hybrid offspring. But what does our God come do? Our God comes down and dies for us and literally becomes our food. And there's this great passage that struck me in the, in, in Benedict's encyclical here, where he says that the ancient world had dimly perceived that man's real food, what truly nourishes him as man is ultimately the logos. Mm -hmm. So think of Greek philosophers who are are seeking truth, right? Who sort of reign as masters in our Western tradition. At least they're seeking truth because that's what truly sustains man. Well, Benedict says, right, you got it. Mm -hmm. But here's the thing. Our God becomes man and then becomes our actual food. So the logos that you were seeking, you rightly identified as the nourishment for man. And that logos gave himself up after becoming man, taking on our flesh and then became the food that sustains us. So we have the God who creates us and then we have the God who voluntarily gives himself up for us so that he can then nourish us. That's that's super powerful and that's totally unique and you won't you won't you won't find any other religion in the history of the world that says that.
1: Yeah, and this this whole kind of episode now brings us to this point where Benedict asserts that through this now sacramental nature, through this communion that we have uh, with Christ uh, that we now share, because as one community, as one um, kind of body of Christ, when we go up and celebrate the Eucharist, we are all in communion with everyone else in the church. Right. And so you are now all residing in that same love in that same love that is God's love, which he has given to us. And now through that, communion benedict says that love of god and love of neighbor are now truly united so he is essentially saying that it's through the act of going to communion of receiving the eucharist that it enables us then to step out of our self-centered reality it enables us to look beyond uh, kind of our human limitations which uh, encourage us or incite us only to love things we can see things that are near to us um objects and people who are really people who uh, love us back. But through that Eucharistic sacrifice and sharing that with the entire body of the church, he says that's what's allowing us and liberating us then to go and, and love completely and fully in, in the way that he does.
0: Well, I think that's maybe a great opportunity to segue into part two, where he talks about what this means for the life of the church, because he says that the church has an obligation to carry out love mm-hmm. in the world because we have this great, pearl of great price that is the eucharist we have the great sacrament of god's love for us and because we encounter it and because we consume it we are changed we cannot you know we go home by a different way right we cannot mm-hmm. we cannot uh, be encountered by that love and remain unchanged so then we have an obligation to show that same agape the same unconditional self-giving love of god to the rest of the world and he, he starts out by citing their early church and saying, you know, first of all, scripture bears clear witness to this, right? Um uh, what's the what's the passage in James uh, about uh, pure and undefiled religion, right? Mm-hmm. To t- take care of orphans and widows in their distress. Yes, And that's definitely. one of many examples. Benedict cites a lot of examples from the book of Acts, where the church is clearly taking care of the least among them, uh, distributing goods and sharing everything that they had so that no one would go hungry or go naked. So the church from the earliest days has been mindful of how to show charity to all inside and outside the church. Um he also has this great story of Deacon Lawrence. I don't know if you've heard this or if you had heard this before reading the encyclical.
1: No, I hadn't.
0: But so the, I think the Pope is imprisoned at this point. Mm-hmm. The emperor then says, I'm taking all the money that the church has. Right. And Deacon Lawrence is the administrator basically in charge of the treasury. And, and, uh, Deacon Lawrence says, okay, I'll show up with it, you know, with the, with all the treasure in our treasury tomorrow. And so he distributes all of the money and there's, there wasn't much, but he distributes the money that the church did have to the poor. And then he shows up at the emperor's doorstep with uh, all the, the poor and the lame and the beggars in the city of Rome and says, these are the true treasures of the church. <laughs> the least among us. Got him. Yeah. Got him. Exactly. Uh, I, I would have loved to have been there for that. Uh, apparently. I mean, it's a, it's an ancient myth. I'm not saying it's not true, but, right. but it's, uh, it's at least become, it's at least endured this long in the church's history because the essence of it is true. The idea of it is true in the sense that those are the treasures of the church. So whether or not Deacon Lawrence was able to pull off a dramatic, uh, a dramatic own of the emperor in Rome is sort of beside the point. Right. It's a great illustration of what the church has always viewed as its treasures. And, and that's, that's the poor, the sick, the needy, the people to whom we can show the most love.
1: Right. And Benedict says that you know, very specifically, he says charity is the responsibility of the church. And he, uh, Kind of with the the Deacon Lawrence story, he talks about how the example of charity is something that then, because it was so powerful, um, then was sort of co opted by secular authorities as well, right? So he kind of talks about how uh, Emperor Constantius, who was um, kind of passed himself off as a good Christian, but was not really. Um, much of a an actual Christian. So not, not a uh, saint, for sure. Right, exactly. <laughs> so that led to this sort of discrediting of, uh, of the Christian faith. And then Julian, uh, the Roman Emperor Julian, however, uh, decided to restore paganism in, uh, in the Roman Empire. But when he did, he introduced a peculiar characteristic that was never really an aspect of Roman paganism, and that was the aspect of charity because he saw of all the things that, that the the church had kind of provided, he saw that charity was really the decisive feature uh, of the entire Christian community. And, as a result, he kind of used that as a way to establish his new pagan religion and give this new pagan religion credibility because the church had such a high degree the, the Catholic Church had such a high degree of credibility because of its charity right um, and it showed Benedict is using this example to show how charity has always been a fundamental aspect of the church even though uh, the church is oftentimes criticized for um, appearing to be lavish, or uh, to to spend money on, you know, a curated art collection or large uh, cathedrals and basilicas, but Benedict is saying, you know, those criticisms can have have other answers. But ultimately, charity has always been a fundamental aspect of the church. That even you know the most secular societies in the world. Roman empire at the height of its paganism recognized that as a fundamental aspect.
0: And even though Julian acknowledged that, or recognized that the charity of the church gave it a lot of credibility, Benedict is very clear that that's not why the charity exists, right? Right. So it's not, uh, the church doesn't exercise love towards the poor so that it gains credibility.
1: And the Romans were never really able to fully replicate. Right. Exactly. Because,
0: because you can't, you can't fake it, right? You can't fake charity. Exactly. Um, and so the, you know that for as many for as many instances as the the charity bought the church credibility, I'm sure there were ten instances which it it became the laughing stock, right? Uh, of men men like Nietzsche who pointed to those weak Christians of uh, multiple men uh, who were sitting in emperor's emperor seats in Rome who sent Christians to their death in front of roaring animals, right?
1: Right. And then when you step out of the ancient world, you see in modernity um, an even sharper criticism almost against, uh, the the church's acts of charity and charitable activity. Um, especially when you look at, as Benedict points out, uh, Karl Marx, right? This revolutionary now idea that the poor, um, don't need your help. They don't need charity. They need justice. Right. So now we've taken, uh, what, what Marx is trying, is trying to do here is saying that acts of charity are bad, like giving people, um, alms, helping them when they're in need, it's actually in a sense bad. If you it do it from the charity the because, of, yeah. Yeah, because it valid in his eyes, it validates the system because it says, well, uh, we live in this unjust society, but because there are some good people who are willing to do charity, it's still like, it's good, enough. It's a good yeah. enough system. Right. And it works. So Benedict kind of goes down this road of um, kind of, he, he even admits there, He says there's some truth to this argument, um, but m- more is mistaken. And what are some of the mistakes then that he kind of points out there?
0: Well, I, I think he, he's pretty clear in saying that Marxism uh, doesn't work in practice and mm-hmm. um, market economies are better at lifting people out of poverty, but this is not a wholesale endorsement of capitalism at all. Nothing, nothing like that. What, what he's concerned with is that Marxism doesn't have the right starting principles in mm-hmm. mind, right? And so charity is still very important. And he says, look, even in the most just society, if, if we could design a utopia and make it so that it was the most just society in the world, there would still be inequalities and injustices and deficits of love that the state would not be able to take care of. Mm -hmm. And that's what the church can do, right? Because the church can exercise charity in a way that the state simply cannot. Now he doesn't say that charity is totally outside the purview of the state. And in fact, a good statesman should be very concerned with how to administer charity through the state. Um, And and Benedict talks at length about the Catholic social teaching that has, Mm -hmm. and he lists uh, several encyclicals that have, engaged at length in ideas of catholic social teaching but he says again unique to christianity is this idea that from the words of christ render unto caesar what is caesar's and unto unto god what is god's so he says the church has a place in the in the temporal uh in the temporal affairs of the world but the church is not the state and the right. church should never be in the role of the state
1: and he specifically says that you know the role of the state is or at least the aim of a state is to create a just social, social order, right? And that ultimately the ordering of a society and a state is the central role of politics, not the the church, right? But I think what he, he does here that is particularly powerful is he admits that sort of temporal authority, but then comes back and says, but if charity is the responsibility of the church and ultimately love is going to be the responsibility of the church, then the way that the church plays a role in this ordering of society is not through the direct involvement in the ordering of the society right. It's through the moral education of what justice is and towards what ends it should be oriented. Right. right. So it's not the place of the church to say, you know, this political system or that political system is going to get us to um, the, the social state that we are aiming at, the just social state we're aiming at but it is the role of the church to inform politics and the state as to what that end state actually looks like. Yeah, I totally agree.
0: Um, And I think I need to correct myself. I said that he was pretty clear on market economies. I don't think he actually mentions that in this. I think I'm confusing it with a different book I was reading last night Mm. from another Catholic thinker uh, who is not a Pope, but, I don't want to uh, give the impression that Benedict was making this a polemic about right. capitalism because that's not at all what it is. And he mentions Marxism very specifically, but it's, it's because of the underlying ideology of Marxism. It is not a capitalism versus Marxism discussion.
1: Right. And I want to you know go back to something that you said uh, just a minute ago about how the attempt to, to, to really build a utopia is ultimately going to end with some aspects being left out. Right. right? And uh, we saw this, also in Plato. So Plato's dialogues, uh, if, if you spend much time reading them, one of the things that uh, begins to strike you, especially if you have a great professor who kind of points them out to you <laughs> as I did. Um, but one of the things that starts to strike you is that Plato's dialogues are almost as notable for the things he leaves out of them as what is included in them. So when he talks about... Uh, for example, in his sort of philosophical utopia, the Republic, um, the ideal society, the, the virtue that is completely left out of that society is love. Mm. The virtue that is left out in this case, since it is a Greek writing is eros. So there is no marriage. Uh, children are ripped away from their families at a very young age and become wards of the state. Uh, people don't love each other. There's no charity. There's no, uh, goodwill to outside societies because to do so is taking away from the utopia itself. Right, right. So it raises very you know, significant questions about what Plato is really telling us in that and why um, certain schools of platonic thought, uh, which uh, frankly, just to admit a bias I particularly subscribe to, I find them to be uh, more persuasive than some of the others, but they basically say that the Republic, while sort of a philosophical idea is also a warning and it's a question to us, like this is possible. And I think socialism, Marxism is an attempt to uh, put into practice many of the things that Plato outlined in theory uh, in the Republic. And we kind of see the destruction of the individual, right? When you look at Soviet uh, society Absolutely, yeah. or communist Chinese society, you see the destruction of the individual. You see um, in some cases, you know, a lack of charity and, and love, um, is kind of, there's an attempt to stamp it out. It ultimately, I think, wins out in the end. But it what, what those dialogues do for us and, and what they present to us is they ask us a question, what are we willing to sacrifice for a quote-unquote perfect society? For our perfect material society, are we willing to sacrifice virtues like love? Uh, and I think the resounding answer of humanity is no, because you know, as human beings who are bound to God, we can't live without those things.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that's really well said. And uh, I, I like your take on the platonic dialogue of the Republic. Yeah. I, I think that's good. And uh, I also like what you said. It's about really
1: that. not my take. It's someone much smarter uh, well, than I, my I, take. I like the way that you've, uh, that you I've absorbed have, it. it. Yeah. I like that.
0: Um, it's news to me. So how about that? I, I think you're right too, that this, you know, the, the concern is about the destruction of the person, right? So I think the destruction of the individual is a little bit misleading because mm-hmm. Christianity sure. is not really about the individual but we are concerned about the person. And we're concerned about the person because, well, because God is concerned about the person, because God created the person, because the person bears the image of God, and because this person is totally, perfectly, and uniquely loved by God. And so whenever you have a system that attempts to destruct or deconstruct or diminish the person, that's a serious problem. And that's Benedict's concern here. It's it's not um, it's not about holding up capitalism. In fact, he he mentions I think only subs- subsidiarity. I don't think he mentions uh, capitalism. Like I said, mm-hmm. I amended my previous comment. Um, but he does talk about some of the challenges of of modern day. He talks about mass interconnectedness mm-hmm. and technology, and he says, "Look, this has enabled some good stuff, and that's certainly true." It's also right, uh, like the
1: wide reaching humanitarian aid. Exactly, great example yeah. of something that. Modern globalization has provided
0: exactly. It's also uh, provided some problems, right? Uh, civilizational friction, uh, not to mention. I mean, now we're we're even more acutely aware than we were in 2005 when he wrote this. So 14 years later, we're aware of how much of a problem screen time is for kids, right? Or or for adults, you know, how glued we are to our phones and how much that distracts from love of neighbor. So that's one. Um, increased cooperation between the church and the state agencies. Um, Another one that that has good and bad things, right, because state agencies and the church when working together can provide massive amounts of good. But there's also uh, the opportunity for increased friction because sometimes state agencies want to do things that are not in accordance with how the church does charity. Right. So I I think, for example, of um, Melinda Gates who has been a big proponent of uh, sending condoms to Africa and uh, using that as a main uh, tactic for reducing HIV and AIDS on the continent. The church says, no, we're not going to distribute condoms. Right. And so there, there is a uh, friction like that. This that can sometimes rise between the church and uh, either non, you know, big, big NGOs like the Gates foundation or, or state agencies. Um, and then there's the, the anti-culture of death. And I think he rightly calls it an anti-culture because culture just to think of like cultures growing in a lab. Uh, you, you, Cultures are life, right? Mm-hmm. You grow cultures, uh, you cultivate a garden, the root of culture is all about life. So he rightly calls it an anti-culture. And here he's talking about um, not just things like abortion and euthanasia, although those are the most flagrant examples, but also like we're talking about, a society or an ethic that devalues the human person. Um Sally and I, on our other other podcast, Vernacular, talked with Charlie Camosi, who's a philosophy professor at Fordham University. And he has this new book about a culture of encounter. But he talks a lot about this idea, too, this idea that we can devalue the human person um, for the sake of a better society. And that's just devastatingly bad for society. And it's completely antithetical to the church because it's, an, it's antithetical to the love of God.
1: Mm hmm. Yeah. And you know, ultimately Benedict kind of rolls this up and he talks about kind of three essential elements of Christian and ecclesial charity. Um, The first is that it responds to an immediate need, right? In specific circumstances, you feed the hungry, you clothe the naked. This is the specific injunction that's provided to us by Christ. Go and do these things. It's not some abstract, oh, well, let's try to order, you know, things towards justice and then hopefully people will get fed. No, someone's hungry, go feed them feed them first, right, right? right? That is the act of that, that it has to meet that immediate need. Second is that it's supposed to be completely independent of parties and ideologies, which I think is exactly what you were just going after. Right. Right. Is if you are being informed by your charity is informed by this desire to, um, you know, conform to some political idea, ideology or to, um, you know, it's kind of a popular term, know, Back, re- I don't know, not not too long ago, they talk about the eschaton, like bringing
0: right, right, the, the that's an Eric Vogelin phrase, so.
1: exactly bringing the perfect end state into the world, or like bringing the, the kingdom of of God down into the the kingdom of 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 Earth, um, but ultimately it should be devoid of those sorts of things. It should come from a true wellspring uh, of love, right? And then finally, uh, the last one he talks about is that it should be a means. I'm going to Benedict's exact words. He says it cannot be used as a means of engaging in what is nowadays considered proselytism. And I know, yeah, that's um, a really big one, yeah. kind of, uh, Kind of brought this up a little bit, but what do you think? Like, why proselytism seems like you know a good thing if you want to go out and evangelize. So, why do you think uh, Benedict is saying you know it shouldn't be charity should not be used for proselytism?
0: Yeah, I actually read this section twice because I had the same exact impulse. I was like, wait a minute, we we want to. I mean, proselytize kind of has a negative word, but replace it with evangelism, right? So, like, you know, love should not be used as a means of evangelism. And I was like, wait, hold on, Uh, let me think about that one. Let me think that through a little bit. But he's he's right, I think, and this is why. So. Um, he's he does not say evangelism is bad, and in fact, throughout the entire encyclical, he's very clear that you know a mission of the the church is to evangelize, right? That's one of the reasons that the church exists. He says that the threefold responsibility of the church is to one is preaching and teaching the word, right? That that is evangelism, charisma, right, right? Two is uh, administering the sacraments, and three is exercising charity. So all of those three are indispensable to the mission of the church, and you you can't have one effectively without the other right so that's and and they reflect the trinity you know so that, that is part of the trinitarian exercise of the church's uh threefold responsibility okay so with that said benedict's very clear about the necessity of evangelism and formation what he's saying here about love and the way the church exercises charity is that it has to be unconditional and so when you think about this going back to the first the first section of this encyclical where his he's reflecting on agape, agape is unconditional love, and so what he's saying, I think, is that the exercise of charity by the church can never be conditioned by something else. We mm-hmm. can't we can't love people because then we can we can right, get them right. on our side, right? We can't we can't love them only if they will come to church, right? We have to love them regardless of whether or not they love us back, or regardless of whether or not they they love God back, right? So, and, and he even says in that in that section that the Christian will know when to speak. And when not to speak. Oh, I love that line. Yeah. yeah. So he's he's not saying we can never evangelize in conjunction with loving. He's just saying There's the a love... time and a place for it. Exactly. Right? And he's saying and if you
1: you don't if, if it's gonna be true love, you show it through your act of charity. And as you're saying, you don't conditionalize it by then, you know, making it an act of facilitation. Right. Exactly. It, it's
0: not a contractual thing, it's not a transaction. Mm-hmm. It is self giving, unconditional love, agape. We're about out of time, Kevin. This was dense. I think we've got gotten uh, to the end of the encyclical, so it's it's probably an appropriate time to yeah. wrap up. Um, I do want to just conclude by concluding the way that Benedict did it, and that's that at the end of this encyclical, he talks about Mary quite a mm. lot, and he talks about other saints as well, uh, at least in passing, and he says basically that these are, apart from Christ, obviously, who is the supreme and perfect model of charity, these are fantastic role models for charity uh, because... They, those are models to which we can aspire as well, right? And so he lists some of these saints that most of us have heard of, like Francis of Assisi, Ignatius of Loyola, St. John of God, Camillus of Lelis, which is, I always think it's kind of a funny name. <laughs> he has a great story though. I don't know if you know it, but- now I don't. Um, you should, you should uh, look it up. He's pretty great. Uh, Vincent de Paul, Luis de Merillac, I, who I had not yeah, heard of, I'm no. not sure um, who she is, but uh, John Bosco, Teresa of Calcutta, etc. And one story I just want to share real quick from- from Teresa of Calcutta. I'd heard about this before from her life, but he specifically mentions it in this encyclical. And Kevin, when you were talking about how to gain energy or, or gain um, renewal for this Mm -hmm. love so that you can then turn outward and express it from the church, the important thing is that you go to the Eucharist and you're repeatedly accessing the sacraments, go to confession, go to the Eucharist. And Teresa, obviously, dark night of the soul, right? She felt such serious despair and desolation for so much of the time that she was engaging in agape. The things that she did in the slums of Calcutta mm-hmm. just take the cake for for you know the model for of Christian charity, charity yep. right? Um, something that she told novitiates was that she could never have done that if she was not spending time, a lot of time, like hours per day mm. in adoration in front of the blessed sacrament. So it was, it was her adoration of Jesus Christ truly present among us in the Blessed Sacrament that enabled her outward charity towards other people, even when she really wasn't feeling it. And for much of her life, she wasn't feeling it because she experienced such dark despair. Right, you
1: have to love to be loved, right? Right. And if you're, you know, if you're in a place where, you know, maybe you're, you're not feeling particularly loved right now, go to confession mm-hmm. because even if you don't need it by definition, right, even if you don't have mortal sin on your soul, go to confession because you will feel, I can't say that you're going to feel better per se. You're not going to all of a sudden be happy. You're not going to walk out. Um, but there is nothing more consoling than the words of absolution. There is nothing more consoling than experiencing that true of you know, unconditional love that's bestowed upon you, that grace and confession. And, um, you know, I think back to, even if you haven't been in a long time, I'll kind of give a personal example, which is rare for me. But, <laughs> but you know, there are two Two occasions I can really think about in kind of my adult Catholic life, and when I think about that, I really mean in my twenties, where um, I was not really uh, devoutly practicing; it was kind of sporadic practicing, if you want to call it that. And two separate occasions, I when I went to confession, I got to the opportunity to go there and you know kneel and say, "Bless me, Father, for I have sinned." It has been and a number, and then the next word was years since my last confession, and that's always hard, but. We're so blessed um, because the priests uh, who who I went to in those in those cases really modeled our gospel story again, bringing it back to that gospel story. The first words they said to me were "Welcome home." So I would implore you, you know, come home. The church is waiting for you.
0: So powerful. I, I too, uh, like you were saying, it's just, it just it almost gives me chills when I'm in the confessional and I finished. I, you know, I finish uh, just spilling my soul and talking about how terrible I am, right? And then you hear God, the Father of mercies. And it's just like, it just it, just, it just centers you, right? And how you,
1: can right? you not, after that, how can you not go out and love others? How
0: can you not, right? I totally agree. Yeah, so, and, and I think just to, to, to wrap this all up, thank you for that story, Kevin. It is inspiring. And I encourage all of our listeners to go to confession if you're not doing so regularly already. We we serve a God who loves us. Mm-hmm. That's the essence of this. Right. So this, the encyclical is not called the church is responsible for loving, right? That, that's not what, I mean, that's a big part of it. And that's the case because that's a response to the actual title of the encyclical. But the encyclical is about our God and our God is love. And he's not eras and he's not philia. He's agape. He loves us unconditionally regardless of what we do. And he is, doesn't need anything in return for that love to be real. That love is real and we can respond to it and we need to respond to it. So do that. Participate in the sacraments,
1: love others,
0: love others, go exercise charity in the world. And thank you so much for listening to credo Catholic. We'd love it. If you give us a review on Apple podcasts, uh, we got a one star review. Did you know that Kevin? Well, we didn't because that that's, true. <laughs> <in> me, <so laughs> that's, that's true. true on you. I I, record, got, so that's true. I got a perfect record. still. I got a one star <laughs> review. Um, I'm just gonna they didn't leave any any words, so I'm just gonna assume that they were confused on the rating system. <laughs> and we're just thinking, you know, one star is superior and five stars is is you know, it's it's like it's like a one through five system where one is the best, five right, is the worst. Sure. Um but yeah, so we got a one star review.
1: And in, I, in that vein, email <laughs> us. <laughs> if we fraternally correct us and email us so we would we'd would like I mean constructive Criticism is always welcome. Yeah,
0: constructive criticism or just questions. We'd love to take some questions from you if you have any questions for us. It doesn't have to be on this. It could just be on any topic in theology. If we don't know the answer, we'll research it for you and uh, talk about it on the show because we love to find out the truth as well. So at podcast.com. Go leave us a rating or review on iTunes. Five stars only, please. <laughs> at vernacularpodcast.com. We'll be back. Uh, I have a, an interview coming up next week with uh an interesting guest that i'm excited to release and we'll be releasing that kevin wanted to be there for the conversation i wanted him to be there as well but right now we're limited we only have two microphones two microphones and uh we need three to have him here for an interview with the guest so but in the meantime we'll be prepping the next episode of encyclopedia and uh we we'll have another episode coming out soon but if you have any topic suggestions or you want us to talk through a specific encyclical let us know as well. Credo Catholic at vernacularpodcast.com. Thank you so much for listening, and God bless you.